Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 36, Fatherlands. Well, welcome back to History Against the Grain. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. I'm looking out my window, Josh, and there's a light rain uh, falling here in Northern California, and, and, and it's almost cliche to say it, but you know, we need the water. And uh, I know it's been windier up your way, and, and from everywhere from you know the Bay Area to Yosemite trees have fallen over. Uh, I bet you heard the wind last night, didn't you? Yeah, I was just gonna gonna bring up that we were getting these emails from our our campus, and they were just they were uh, the the subject line was ARC after the storm. We had like you know a little windstorm; it was raining, <laughs> but uh, after the storm, which sounds. Uh, <laughs> Really serious. Yeah, there's almost metaphorical. You know, we're going to talk to yeah. Jeremy Best later in today's episode, and he's in Ames, Iowa. And uh, Jeremy told us, I think the air there, it doesn't rain, it just freezes, right? Yeah. Yeah, 10 degrees or some, something crazy like that. We're, 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 we're doing pretty well here in sunny California, I would say. No one feels sorry for us when we uh, complain about the weather. But no, I listen, I'm, I'm only too happy to see the uh, precipitation, let's say. Uh, well, think of it as a baptismal rain that can wash away all the sins <laughs> of this guilty country yeah. <laughs> in the last month or so. Speaking of which, uh, there has been some, some famous attempts to, uh, I guess, wash away that, that guilt in a different way <laughs> and in a way that... Uh, is very relevant to this podcast in our, our discussions. And that's uh, through a rewriting of history, I guess we can say, you know, this was now a couple of weeks ago, which is in, uh, in 21st century time. That's three years ago, I think is the, the conversion, but um, where uh, at the telltale end of the Trump presidency, uh, this document was released called the 1776 project. And it was greeted with much acclaim. Is that, is that right? Historians were all on board with it. Well, I, I I know you well enough now. I consider myself a connoisseur of your sarcasm. I can do, <laughs> I can pull it even from the most apparently sincere statement. No, uh, you're right. It was hurriedly done. Trump had called for a 1776 commission. What back in September, I think, uh, to uh, write a report uh, contesting essentially the 1619 project, New York Times uh, 1619 project. Uh, and to restore what he considered to be patriotic history uh, in the main narrative of, of America's, uh, you know, history discussion. And so with only minutes to spare as the clock counted down uh, on his last days in office, yeah, we were treated to this uh, so-called uh, report, you know, by the commission. And uh, as you suggest, uh, it w- felt like a, you know, as they say, a, you know, a box of rock, a box of rocks. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it fell with a thud. And uh, in fact, you were the, the one of the first to tell me, I guess, from maybe uh, what you're reading on Twitter is that somebody ran the thing through a spell check or, or I mean, a uh, plagiarism check or something, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, it didn't do very well. It, it would not have. Uh, I would have had to reach out to the student if it was one of my students turning this in. 
and gently let them know that uh, this paper does not seem to be in your words. So uh, <laughs> it was cut and pasted. I think you told yeah. me from uh, among other places, you know, various Wikipedia pages, and there was a little bit of Wikipedia, and then you know, a lot of like just uh, traditional kind of conservative Christian kind of homeschooling material as okay. well. Right. Um, you know, there's it, the the thing is littered. You you read it, I think, probably more of it than I did, but it's littered with things in quotes to have no reference mm-hmm. so just quoted <laughs> quoted lines but no no sense of where those quotes actually came from right disembodied uh, quotes. scholarship another thing we yeah. get after our students for right the cutting and pasting of right. quotes without attribution uh, not even a principal author or authors identified uh, there was a body uh, named to the commission itself not a a single well i guess what one historian maybe uh uh ancient of the ancient world uh on the yeah, commission the- uh, but no, yeah. certainly no uh, known U.S. history, mostly a bunch of political lackeys and others, you know, that are part of the, the Trump circle. Uh, let me tell you what the American Historical Association <laughs> had to say about it. James Grossman, the executive director of the American Historical Association, said this was not a work of history, but, quote, cynical politics. This report skillfully weaves together myths, distortions, deliberate silences, he says, and both blatant and sub- subtle misreading of evidence to create a narrative and an argument that few respectable professional historians, I didn't know there were any respectable historians, <laughs> but that few respectable professional historians, even across a wide interpretive spectrum, would consider plausible, never mind convincing, he said. They're using something they call history, meaning the, six, the uh, 1776 commission, they're using something they call history, to stoke culture wars. It's, you know, on the one hand, um, this thing is kind of, it, it, it came and went, right? It was put mm-hmm. out like in the final waning days of the presidency. I think one of the first things <laughs> Biden did was uh, get rid of the commission, the 1776 commission. Yeah, the webpage um, uh, actually disappeared, right? You couldn't yeah, find it yeah, anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the one way you can look at it is, oh, so this is irrelevant. It just came and went, who cares? But but it really is indicative, indicative of, of what, you know, if you really want to do patriotic history, and certainly there's there's more legitimate scholars who who might call for legitimate, uh, sorry, for patriotic history than than these jokers who who put this together. But it it almost is, I mean, shining a light on what patriotic history would actually look like. Like this is this is what they 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 want is this kind of history, and it just doesn't work. Um, you can do it in a more legitimate fashion. You can get actual American historians, but if your goal is to create patriotic history, it's always going to be. Um, it's always going to be a mess. Um, you know, we're going we're to talk to, to our, our guests in a little bit about this concept in German historiography of, historiography of Sonderweg, this idea that Germany was on a special path that led them to, um, to, to the, the, the Holocaust. But it, it, it kind of just, you know, points out to me that anytime you come up with a totalizing, uh, you know, narrative, whether it's uh, Sonderweg in Germany or American exceptionalism or patriotic history, um, any kind of nuance has to go out the window. Any kind of you know real engagement with the sources has to go out the window, and um, those kind of histories are are very hard to um, to separate from just pure propaganda. Now, again, this was an extreme example of this, but it, it really is you know even the best version of this would be saying the same things just with <laughs> better citations, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I listen. I don't think that. The, any adjective belongs in 
in front of history in that respect. In other words, patri- patriotic history is a kind of yeah. um, oxymoron, really, because it 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 is it presumes a certain purpose beforehand. You know, now you could say, look, history might inspire people to feel patriotic, but to say that it's patriotic history, you've already laid your cards bare. You know, in 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 that you're doing something essentially not ahistorical. I mean, you're you're yeah. you're before the fact, as it were, creating a purpose that has as its you know stated uh, end, you know, some orthodoxy about you know in this case what what American um, patriotic uh, history is. I mean, listen, Trump said that this project rewrite, rewrites American history to teach our children that we were founded on the principle of oppression, not freedom. Now, he was talking about the 1619 Project mm-hmm. in that case. Yeah. And so he wants to redress that, if you will, you know, by creating a patriotic history that does, I don't know, you know, the opposite or something. But the, but the thing is, you know, that I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't quite get away because some of the more outlandish, you know, claims that were made in, in Trump's uh, commission's, you know, report, the 1776 project, you know, had to do with slavery, right? You know, and, and uh, you know, acknowledging somehow slavery existed, <laughs> you know, which was yeah. okay, so far so good, you know, but, but then doing everything possible by rhetorical sleight of hand to make it seem as if the founding fathers, as they're called, uh, which again, I, I think is a bad idea, but okay, the founding fathers is that uh, they were really abolitionists at heart and sort of, you know, were victims of the times in which they lived. You know, we've heard this sort of thing before, right? And were kind of yeah. born into slavery, but did everything they could to set slavery on the path of ultimate extinction. Now, okay, so that that's a, a thesis, I guess, of patriotic history, but it's not historically supportable in my estimation. But the interesting thing about it, because, you know, because after all, I mean, it's easy enough to show that that American slavery, you know, expanded and deepened after the revolution. Not, you know, no, no, no course of abolition, right? You don't see a course of abolition until essentially the 13th Amendment, you know, happens yeah. in 1865 right. at the end of a bloody civil war. But uh, never mind that. It's this thing that Trump does here where he says, we, that we were founded. And I was thinking about that, Josh, and it's why we called our our episode today Fatherlands, because we've seen before, like with Senator Cotton of Arkansas evoking the fathers, the Puritan fathers, or maybe in the 1776 report, the founding fathers, is that, you know, my goodness, you talk about a kind of invented something, a construct of paternity, mm-hmm. right, of fatherhood, which is the basis, after all, of the ideal of, of patriotism. But nevertheless, when he says we, I'm thinking, whose ancestors, you know, is he talking about and which answers? No, whose fathers and which fathers? Because what it becomes is a kind of metaphor for everyone who simply holds this view, right? I mean, I don't think in any literal sense. A lot of people get on Ancestry.com or 23andMe and they, they trace their family tree. I mean, what what percentage of folks do you think, let's say white, you know, uh, voter supporters of, of Trump actually had ancestors here in 1776? You know, if, if they None. were Irish, if they were German, maybe. 
you know, maybe, but most Irish and most German come later. Uh, if mm. they're Italian or Southern European, almost certainly not, right? Eastern European, almost certainly not. So it's not the literal case, right, that their ancestors were the, you know, the revolutionaries of, of 76. So what that means then, the we, you know, uh, is not so much a literal ancestral connection, but what, a kind of metaphorical one that you become a member of as soon as you buy into it? Is that the idea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, some kind of some kind of club that, that I mean, so this is this is something that I, I, it's kind of a, I, pet peeve is probably too weak of a, a way of putting this, but, <laughs> you know, in talking about like the Enlightenment, um, the, the, the fact that so many Enlightenment scholars use universal language mm -hmm. to talk about very particular interests, mm -hmm. right? They, they use lofty terms, you know, all men created equal may be the most famous example of that mm -hmm. when they don't even really mean all all men. And I think that that use of we is is very similar in that they're saying we and, and you know, in, in some ways we can all, you know, see ourselves in that we, but they don't mean, they don't mean everybody when they say we. They mean something very particular and some people very particular when they talk about the we within that statement. Um, and it does yeah. not include, uh, you know, lots and lots of people. Well, you know, and, and that's, that's a beautiful point because you know who I'm thinking could actually say we in terms of ancestors literally being here at the time of the revolution, who would that be? That would be the majority of African-American people uh, living yeah. in the United States today. That is, that is uh, you know, men and women who, black men and women whose ancestors were enslaved and through the transatlantic slave trade arrived in the British colonies uh, ahead of the American Revolution in 1776, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it was about the time of the American Revolution that the slave, the Atlantic slave trade was reaching its peak in terms of numbers. And so even though there will continue to be until officially, what, 1808, uh, African-born people coming to what, you know, the early United States, uh, I would guess, and I haven't asked 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and I would like to look this up, that nevertheless, perhaps a majority of African-American people living in the United States today who have ancestry in the United States go back at least to the American Revolution. And yet, as you point out, when Trump says we, he's probably not talking about those people, is he? I mean, he's probably explicitly not talking about those people, <laughs> right. people in many ways, right? <laughs> those uh, people you know, who were cover. enslaved at the time, right? Yeah. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna talk about when we get to our, our interview about the, the kind of symbols and code words and um, you know the language of, of of white supremacy. But a big part of it is is saying things that make sense to you and people who think like you, but to other people, you know, you're kind of left out of the conversation. And and we is maybe not the best example of that, but it, it certainly is is an idea that you know when somebody like Trump says it, when the 1776 Commission says it, when Tom Cotton says it, they're assuming that the right people will associate themselves with that we and the wrong people will not right that in, in its own way it's a it's a symbol it's a, it's a message uh to certain people and and a message not expected to to be used or understood by by other people yeah and therefore fundamentally i would only add therefore fundamentally ahistorical uh because yeah. it if if we're talking about fathers and ancestors and we're talking about people here in 76 we're talking about uh african-american people living in the country today, certainly they would not identify that legacy 
you know, as something to be celebrated. That That is that legacy of enslavement that men like Thomas Jefferson and others, uh, you know, perpetuated, right? They, they would not, by the, that definition, then qualify for patriotic history. It's one, as one historian mm-hmm. said, the 1776 commission report almost holds uh, that, that calling certain founders like Jefferson, calling them hypocrites for promoting, you know, uh, liberty at the same time as they were deepening the ties of slavery, to call them hypocrites for that is somehow worse than the fact that there was, in fact, slavery in the country at the time. A lot of this is just, it's just wrapped up in the project of nationalism, right? This is almost inseparable from nationalism because to create, you know, nationalism, the nation is a construct. And to to build that construct, you need symbols, you need uh, ideas, you need heroes uh, to to make, you know, people want to latch on to that, uh, that, that construct. And the result is you end up with a lot of these national stories that end up, um, you know, highlighting individuals, elevating individuals, elevating stories that, you know, when we as contemporary story, historians look back, uh, you know, as we've talked about many times in this in this podcast before, you know, Thomas Jefferson doesn't look quite as well to a, a good or quite as good to a, a contemporary audience as he may have to, uh, you know, nationalist historians in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And it's, it's a problem that's not just uh, in the United States. It's a problem that's more broad, you know, more broad around the world, especially because so many of the nations around the world really formed in the fairly recent, fairly recent past. I mean, as, as strange as it is to say, the United States is a fairly old nation by the standards of, of nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, I would say the actually probably the majority of nations in the world today, you know, formed in the last uh, latter half of the, of, of the 20th century and have had to therefore you know, construct their own idea of their national heroes and national myths. And and that can be problematic, especially considering, uh, you know, the history of 20th century Europe. You you came across something today, uh, I think it was in the New York Times, yeah. that kind of gets at this this issue. And this was a, um, a Lithuanian uh, writer who looked into the past of her grandfather uh, and, and, and found something pretty, pretty disturbing. Yeah, this is Sylvia Foti. Uh, she is a, a Lithuanian-American um, journalist and, and writer who had uh, a piece in the New York Times today called, uh, the headline was, or the title was, No More Lies, My Grandfather Was a Nazi. And, uh, and so that was, a, you know, that was a title um, uh, destined to, to get my attention, I suppose. Right. She's written a book, a forthcoming book, The Nazi's Granddaughter, How I Learned My Grandfather Was a War Criminal. Now, the, the thing that struck me about this and why, you know, uh, because when, you know, when, you know, therefore refused to, to acknowledge the true contradictions of the past, uh, but also to suggest that there is a kind of ameliorative effect by promoting a, a patriotic history. I think Sylvia Foti's piece suggests uh, just the opposite, that when we tell uh, dishonest stories, as we sometimes say here on History Against the Grain, we don't get well, we get, uh, they make us sicker, right? And so she uses the example of her own grandfather who was lauded, in post-World War II Lithuania Mm -hmm. as a great hero of Lithuania, uh, a kind of uh, hero for a new Lithuania that will be, of course, uh, co-opted, you know, um, by the Soviet, uh, by the Soviet Union. And he was regarded as a hero by Lithuanians because he resisted the Soviets. 
he resisted the, the right up to the point where they 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 murdered him, right uh, by some firing squad uh, or something. Mm-hmm. And so for proud Lithuanians who were bitter and resentful of the Soviet, yeah. you know, occupation and effect of their country or the co-optation of their country as one of the Baltic republics. Uh, through the long, you know, history of of the post-war year, the many decades that followed under the Soviet regime, they looked to her grandfather Jonas Norieka as a genuine Lith- Lithuanian hero because he stood up to the Soviet Union. But what Sylvia Foti found out in researching the life of her grandfather is that, on the other hand, Josh, <laughs> that before. Uh, his death, you know, as a resistor of the Soviet, a communist resistor, that during World War II, he closely uh, collaborated with the Nazis. She says, I learned that the man I had believed was a savior who did all he could to rescue Jews during World War II had in reality ordered all Jews in his region of Lithuania to be rounded up and sent to a ghetto where they were beaten, starved, tortured, raped, and then murdered. More than 95% of Lithuania's Jews died during World War II. Many of them killed with the eager collaboration of their neighbors, and as it turns out, Josh, of her grandfather, who served in a kind of uh, administrative role under the Nazis in Lithuania, and as she points out, um, cooperated in some really dark and unsavory things. Yeah, what's what's so interesting also is, um, you know, so her, her family I think was in Chicago. Is that is that right? Where there's a, a big Lithuanian community, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and you know the, their family was mm-hmm. connected to this this founding figure, right? Other people kind of identified them as as the family of this major uh, national national hero. And and when she starts looking into this, you know, the real history of her grandfather. Um, her mother kind of on her deathbed, I believe, gave her the charge of, of writing this history of the grandfather. As she found all this disturbing stuff, suddenly people turned against her, that the Lithuanian community didn't want to know this stuff. They wanted mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, retain the, the idea that this, this guy was a, was a hero of, of Lithuania. And it, you know, it, it, it does show that, you know, for a lot of people, they don't really want the story, right? What they want is the symbol. Um, the symbol is the important part. And, mm-hmm. You know, it, it does. It, it's complex because symbols are are important. Symbols can unite people, but there's a real danger to you know making people into into symbols and heroes without regard to to who they actually were. Because what it can tend to do is elevate some extremely unsavory is probably too nice a way to put it, but um, genocidal behavior into uh, you know into these mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. The, the center of the center of, of, of these histories and. You know, as as we've been talking about a lot in in this country, um, there's eventually a, a reckoning where we we had to start recognizing you know black lives within American history, um, and you know as as a Jewish person myself, the idea that a national hero of, of Lithuania would be himself a Nazi sim- sympathizer, that's not just some you know some thing that oh it's fine because they 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 all like him and he 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 fought against the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a horrific thing to, to kind of hold up at the center of, of national identity. Well, I, naturally, I agree with you. And I think that's why it's such a powerful illustration of how these so-called patriotic histories, in this case, it would be a, a patriotic Lithuanian account of her grandfather, you know, the, the, the damage that they can 
do. You know, she, she says, you pointed out, she was vilified in, in not only Chicago's Lithuanian community, but also in the <laughs> yeah, country yeah. of Lithuania, you know, where news of this uh, arrived. And, you know, what she said really struck me, it applies in its own way to uh, Trump's call for patriotic history in the United States. She says that transforming a Nazi collaborator, which is what her grandfather was, into a national hero requires four steps, four steps of manipulation. One step shifts all the blame mm-hmm. to the Nazis, even though my grandfather, like many Lithuanians, willingly participated in slaughtering Jews. Well, that's horrific, of course, you know, and I think the analog to U.S. history would be, you know, the, not just the condoning of slavery, but, but the perpetuating of slavery, you know, by founders here in this country um, who will then create extra generations right all the way down to the time of the Civil War. And if we want to stretch it past the war into the age of Jim Crow and lynching of, of racial violence, of racial subjugation, of slavery, you know, and, and, and of death. So you have to be able to shift the blame for that somehow away from them. As Thomas Jefferson tried to do, by the way, you know, Josh, in writing the Declaration of Independence, he, he drafted up a part blaming King yeah. George III of England for foisting slavery on America. And I would say that's where the patriotic history had its origins. Now, the drafting committee ended up voting down. The Continental Congress didn't include that part because they were not so shamefaced as to say, well, we can't really blame George III for the fact that, you know, we're actually building a, a slaveocracy here and now uh, the United States. But it was that that tendency to want to blame it away and the 1776 commission report wanting to blame it away from the father, the founding fathers themselves, you know, on onto other uh, kind of nebulous uh, world for slavery was just something in the passive voice that right. was just happening right at the time. She says the second step creates a victim narrative, asking how a Jew killer could be sent to a Nazi concentration camp. Uh, so uh, a victim narrative. Well, the founding fathers were really victims themselves mm-hmm. of slavery. Their, their, their intent was to abolish it. But, you know, what could you do? You were born into it. And again, Jefferson did a bit of that in the notes on Virginia. His writing in the 1780s when he said that, uh, you know, he was born into this, as were many Virginia slave owners, and that's, that's what they knew, you know, and that to try and, and change course abruptly, you know, would create an even greater problem somehow. So in that case, kind of blaming what, I don't know, their inheritance or something, you know, for uh, for slavery. She says the third step discredits counter narratives by labeling them as mm. communist propaganda told by enemies of the state. Yeah. Does I mean, that sound familiar? That's 1776 project. I mean, that's ba- that's basically the, uh, the the critique that was made of the 1619 project, I should say, is that this is this propaganda right. meant to right. undermine the United States and all this, this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it was a charge level by the 1776 Commission report, which said pretty, pretty, uh, uh, you know, uh, explicitly that, uh, and they tied together, by the way, progressives yeah. into this, you know, not not only blaming the kind of large impersonal forces for foisting slavery onto America, but then progressives writing in the 20th century uh, were akin to, you know, the other um, sort of boogeymen, you know, uh, socialists, communists, far left, you know, ideologists or whatever. They're all kind of wrapped up into one big ball as the enemies of patriotic history. 
and so then the final step, she says, refuses to accept that two seemingly contradictory truths can coexist. One, that her grandfather uh, bravely fought against the communists, but also that he shamefully participated in killing Jews. And, you know, this is something we've talked about a lot on, on History Against the Green, is the essential messiness mm-hmm. of history, the contradictions of history. You know, I tell my students there are very few straight lines, you know, in history. Uh, and contradiction abounds. Uh, and yet if you try to point that out, if you try to suggest that Thomas Jefferson was not only you know, uh, a, a revolutionary who sp- who espoused some of the most, uh, you know, influential and I would even say articulate, you know, uh, writings on, on the meaning of liberty and freedom, that at the same time he was also, you know, a, a willing architect in the perpetuation of enslavement, that, that th- those seemingly contradictory ideas, uh, both of them are true, but only one of them can be a formally then acknowledged, I guess, in a patriotic history. Yeah, is that right? Absolutely. You know, th- this all got me got me thinking about. There's a story, an um, uh, Irish story named Liam Hogan, uh, and he was he was writing about um, these attempts in in Ireland to uh, I guess I guess Scotland actually to um, to people are trying to get rid of David Hume's name from some uh, university buildings because Hume. Uh, this Enlightenment scholar has this this history of supporting slavery and, uh, and and developing kind of racialist ideas in the 18th century, and and the uh, the the defense of of Hume is often, you know, that he was just a man of his time. And Liam Hogan says, if he was not wrong because he he was quote of his time, then nothing is ever wrong because it's always of its time, right? And it's such <laughs> I I can't believe I haven't seen that that argument made before because it's so true, right? That Yes, people can be of their time, but it's also okay to criticize the time, right? Um, and yeah, well, yeah, I, and I would even go one step further because I would say what the patriotic uh, history people don't want us to know is that as Henry Winsack, the the author of a book I have my students read called uh, "Master of the Mountain: Thomas Jefferson as Slaves," as Henry Winsack said. Jefferson was bumping into emancipationists yeah. at every turn. In other words, there were people living in David Hume's day and Thomas Jefferson's day who were fully avowing right. the abolition of slavery. You know, uh, in other words, it, it wasn't this idea that, well, you know, everybody bought into slavery. What are you going to do? No, that's not true. Jefferson had to deliberately um, sort of finesse his way. Many of many of them were close associates right. of his, right? You know, had to finesse his way through their critiques, contemporary critiques, that is people at the time critiquing Jefferson for his seeming uh, obstinacy and and perhaps, you know, contradictory stance on the issue of of of, of slavery, but you know, again patriotic folk uh, history folk would have us believe that, oh, that was just something that later progressives came up with or something. Uh, well, I, I tell you what, I'll leave the, the last word on this to Sylvia Foti. You know, she says, um, an analysis of a dark past is always traumatic, but we will never achieve clarity and healing if we base our history on lies. I'm, I think you wrote that. It sounds like something you would have written. Really beautiful. <laughs> Well, and, and needless to say, I think here on History Against the Grain, we would, we would agree with her and suggest that whatever we have to, you know, whatever, um, you know, um, traumatic truths we have to confront, uh, that uh, like any good patient in therapy, confronting those, those truths then is the first step toward uh, some kind of health and wellness. 
Absolutely. Well, let's get to our, our interview for this uh, for this episode. It's been a while since we had a historian, another historian on to talk about their book, but this week we have an uh, excellent historian, Dr. Jeremy Best of Iowa State University. Uh, he teaches in a number of fields there, including German history. It was one of the reasons we wanted to have him on in addition to his book. The book is called Heavenly Fatherland, German Missionary Culture and Globalization in the Age of Empire. And we had a, a, a really fun conversation uh, talking about um, the book itself, obviously, but also just contemporary United States and, and what, as a German historian, um, what are the kind of echoes or the the, the, the rhymes he sees as, as we talk about in the interview between our contemporary situation and German history in the, the first part of the, the 20th century. So enjoy our interview with Jeremy Best. Talk to me. All right, we are here uh, with Jeremy Best, Dr. Jeremy Best from Iowa State University, and we are going to talk to him about a number of things, including his newly released book, Heavenly Fatherland, German Missionary Culture, and Globalization in the Age of Empire. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy Best. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Josh and Chris. I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk to you about everything we're going to talk about, including my book, which is, you know, that'll no, be No, congratulations, by the way. I know it, it's literally just, it's fresh, right? Yeah, and still got uh, the new book smell. Yeah, it still uh, it still has that new book smell. I still have a couple in the, you know, the publisher sends you a couple of copies. I still have a couple sitting in the box that I haven't yet decided what to do with. Um, but yeah, it's 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 brand new. It's very exciting. first of many. I I'm hope sure. so. I hope so. So we want we're going to get to the book, but we want to talk to you first because you are a German historian. Um, you know, there's been so much lately about uh, American history and, and and German history and people making making links. And when we talked the other day, you you said, um, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Sure. And yeah. so I'm just wondering whether uh, you see some some rhyming patterns between what we're seeing in 2021 with white nationalism mm -hmm. and the the aborted coup, and and uh, and then you know the Germany of of the first half of the, the 20th century. Sure. Yeah. I I do think that uh, the past is a useful way to understand our presence and. Our present, and as everybody knows, it's 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 impossible for history to repeat itself. So that cliche doesn't work because the right. people who are living right now can't possibly behave in a way autonomously from what happened before, right? Like we're always being influenced right. by the past, but it, it can rhyme, and I, I I'm sure I'm plagiarizing that from someone, and I, I wish I know who it was. Um, but the the some of the things that I I see is is sort of you know white nationalism, white supremacy is is sort of an evergreen ideology it seems we we don't ever really seem to be able to uh, eliminate it or uh, reform it which by reform I don't mean make a white nationalism that's workable but reform people who right. are holding those ideas or reform yes. the, the the movements uh, and a lot of that is is sort of is built on these sort of notions of power that that persist uh, and the ways in which uh, the ideology is, is proven to be pretty intoxicating to some people right? it, it provides explanations for the world like like any uh, ideology that, that builds on on conspiracy theories it provides a, a, a way of viewing the world that, that is comforting and that helps perhaps people who are confused or unsure about what to do in their lives or in the contemporary political landscape to kind of come up with a, a, a way to move forward that makes sense and I think that 
could be a way of thinking about how uh, sort of white supremacist movements of you know America's 19th century, America's 20th century, Europe's 20th century uh, global uh, colonial movements of white supremacy that they seem to return to some of the same uh, scripts and same uh, plot lines that 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 help us recognize, I guess, not help, but they, they make a situation where we can recognize uh, the patterns from the past. And so uh, when I, when I think about what's been, what's been happening in the last four years, 10 years, 20 years, you know, uh, a lot of scholars like Kathleen Bilu have, have revealed that really this white supremacist, white nationalist movement isn't something that cropped up at Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City was just a place mm-hmm. where uh, it perhaps entered a new phase or became more visible, right? And in right. some ways legitimates the, the Clinton presidency's uh, attempts at times to confront these movements, the militia movements, uh, at a time when, when I, I was growing up at that time and it felt like these folks were maybe a pretty pretty fringe thing to be worried about, uh, notwithstanding, obviously, Timothy McVeigh and his attack, his, his support attack by many movement members uh, in Oklahoma City. So I, I think that one of the things that's striking is that the, the patterns of uh, strategy and approach are common. Um, I think as, as a German historian, I don't think it's necessary or essential that we identify uh, these movements as the same as the National Socialists or the same as the fascists. Although in many cases, these organizations want you to see them as the same. Right. They utilize ideology, they utilize imagery, they uh, they engage in what is, I think, directly analogous to sort of fanboy behavior of hunting out the most obscure examples they can find. Um, mm-hmm. It's part of why the Romanian uh, Iron Legion and the, um, sorry, the Legion of St. Michael and the uh, Hungarian uh, Iron cross no i'm getting this wrong i'm having a bad day here um and the hungarian <laughs> movements of the 1920s 30s and 40s have become these uh these ways to sort of show how much you know about white nationalism if that makes sense right it's sort of like not just knowing the 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 big stars of the big characters of star wars but knowing who the third bounty hunter in the line is is sort right. of a way of showing off your credentials it's it's a weird it's a weird um outcome of this kind of uh, triumph of the nerd in in right that that yeah um, at a certain point they became the powerful people yeah. and and in in this way yeah I, I thought the, the Star Wars example is actually what I was thinking of that mm-hmm. they're uh, they're nerds about white nationals in the yeah. same way that previous generations cared about and Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever as whatever a their their thing was yeah absolutely Josh as a lifelong nerd I don't want us to be indicting nerddom I think nerddom no is, no and no. I know you're not nerddom has made some some wonderful communities right and it's built a uh, whole whole cultural movements and activities but absolutely <laughs> and I think that that parallel is is echoed by you know is reinforced by the fact that these movements sort of entered another phase as they found homes on the internet as the internet became a tool. Mm-hmm. And again, to, to go back to uh, Bilo's findings, a lot of these movements, organizations, were active in the very early internet. I mean, they, they, they got into this technology very early as a way to connect. And so right. these, uh, and I think a parallel to sort of the 1920s and 1930s is that uh, fascism and national socialism were movements of modernity. 
while they aspired mm-hmm. to a sort of conservatism, and you want to think about how these people are backward and they're retrograde and they're they're trying to take us back to a worse time, more often they're imagining a future that they see as an improvement on the present, right? Not a mm. not a reversal, but an improvement, an advance, a or a reconstitution in a new and better way. Uh, and so right. that is also why white nationalists often talk about what will follow the coming race war will be a renaissance for white mm. people, right? So they're there and it will be reborn. In the 1920s and 30s in Germany, you had uh, movements around the ideas of uh, people like Ernst Jünger, and uh, other scholars of the right in Germany, sort of traditional right, as we call it, or the standard conservative right of elites and uh, business and so forth, who argued for a conservatism of modernity, right? That, that to be reactionary, mm-hmm. but to be modern. Uh, and my, my PhD advisor, Jeffrey Herf, uh, his, his first works were on this, and continues to work on this notion that uh, one of the things that's new and important about National Socialism is this idea of uh, a conservatism that can exist in the modern world. And right. the, the white nationalists of our time are not the same as conservatives of our time, and so I don't want to make too simple of a connection there at all because they are holders of more extreme ideology than, than the majority of uh, conservatives. But they have always seen... Uh, a useful alliance with with the right because of their uh, strong commitment to uh, things like nationalism, to patriarchy usually, uh, and mm-hmm. to uh, a sort of crude sense of uh, social Darwinistic, sort of free market capitalistic, or or some form of, of market driven dominance. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm listening to you, Jeremy, and a, a bunch of things are popping on my head, and. And that that sort of sometimes awkward uh, bedfellows, you know, between one, yeah. you know, one one brand of sort of traditional conservatism, let's say, and then, you know, something that comes seemingly from the fringes or the margins. I mean, I, I was thinking about the picture of the guy, you know, in the Capitol on January 6th with the uh, the rebel battle flag. Did you guys yeah. see that? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think I haven't mentioned it to you, Josh. I don't I don't know necessarily that that individual uh, is steeped in the sort of race, racial ideology writings, you know, of the 19th century, the, of the, you know, the pre-Civil War era, for example, somebody like a, a George Fitzhugh, let's say, you know, who, who wrote um, in a semi, you know, sort of, uh, if not scholarly vein, at least, you know, kind of ideological way about race and whatnot. So I I like what you said, Jeremy, you know, about in some ways it almost strikes as kind of fanboy behavior, you know, that the rebel flag is just cool and it and it associates with certain tropes or, you know, icons mm-hmm. that relate to his own particular notions of, you know, white supremacy or white nationalism or, or something like that. And uh, the fact that they kept stopping to take selfies, you know, hey, listen, that overthrow may have worked. Did you guys think about that? If they hadn't stopped to take so many selfies... <laughs> <laughs> because it's all going on, you know, on social media. And the ve- listen, yep. the very first line of your book, Jeremy, really struck me. I mean, uh, whoever, you know, tell, you must have had journalism in high school or something when they told you to write a great hook, you know, the great first oh, line. Thank you. Because you said in the beginning were the words, words said, <laughs> words written, words read. 
And oh man, I, I'm, you, I'm glad you liked that because it felt pretty. I, I was tongue in cheek <laughs> a little bit. I was a little nervous that people would call me off for that. I that came. I'm sorry to interrupt no, you, Chris, ahead. but I, I have to give a shout out to Ms. Jackie White, who was my eleventh, uh, tenth grade English hey, teacher. Yeah, and one of the first things we read was was the uh, Gospel of uh, John that opens that way, yeah. right? Uh, I think it's John that opens with you know in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and God was the right. word, right? And that. That was an intentional. I mean, I, I'm glad it resonated with you and you liked it because it, it was a throw. It was it was part of this this attempt to s- drive home how textual, the the Protestant missionaries were and how important Scripture was to them in a way yeah. that, uh, also I could kind of just have some fun, right? Sure. And pretend. And I think there's a little bit of a like, uh, part of my sense of humor is to. Uh, pretend to think I'm better than I am, I guess, would be a way to say that. And so to claim, you know, the, the words of, of, of uh, a early author of the Bible, whatever your theology tells you that is, right? Mm-hmm. To claim those words is my own. Um, yeah, thanks for noticing, Chris. <laughs> well, some of our circles overlap, our nerd circles, because I also did uh, yeah. uh, religious history, uh, antebellum religious history in America for a while, and, mm-hmm. and even even smaller circle was um, religious history and abolitionism. And so I remember every time we go to a conference, there were like five of us, you know, sitting there. It was easy (laughs) to find everybody. Um, But I could appreciate because you're talking about a print revolution in the 19th century, you know, where these texts, and listen, few were more uh, conscientious, right, than keeping voluminous records of everything they did and said and argued about than these missionary societies. and Absolutely. and and yet, getting back to our you know our boy in the Capitol with the rebel flag, you know, it occurred to me that you know just as there was that printing revolution in the nineteenth century and everything, you know, all these communications and and sharing of identities and and ideologies, et cetera, was all sort of text based. That you know we have social media now, which is uh, partly I, I suppose we say text based, you know, but but obviously graphic images. Mm-hmm really sell social media, right? You know, and so a guy with a flag, a picture yeah. of a flag, et cetera, all the weird insignias that these guys brought in with them, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned Hungarian crosses and, you know, stuff like that. Um, you really have to be yeah. sort of in that particular um, club, I guess, to appreciate and understand what all the various, the three Roman numerals, uh, of, you know, I mean, I'm becoming a quick study of these things. Now, because yeah. they've been in those sort of marginalia, you know, the, the kind of uh, outer fringes of something. But because of social media and because of the, the corporate media coverage of the insurrection on January 6th, you know, it's all come into our laps. You can find it now in the New York Times and, and that kind of thing. So I was just curious. I mean, I, you know, I have a harboring a question here somewhere as if, you know, as you've studied these things in the context of 1920th century German history, whether, you know, that kind of mode of, of communication, of identification, mm-hmm. you know, the sharing of symbols and whatnot. Um, you know, there's even a, a, a kind of ersatz uh, kind of cross, a Nazi cross, you know, a swastika mm-hmm. that they've mm-hmm. adopted. Uh, I don't want to get into the weeds on this thing because I was I, <laughs> it, it's it's strange. Um, but it's but it's germane to those folks, you know. In other words, and what they're trying to commit. So yeah, maybe uh, did you see some of that, you know, that business on on January sixth? Did it remind you of that kind of attempts to signal and communicate identity and you know? Sure. Yeah. 
certainly I think that uh, to, to start with your rebel flag image, which I think almost everyone listening to this would have at least seen somewhere because it's such an indelible image and it was a subject of, you know, a number of commentaries is somewhat snarky, but I think somewhat accurate of the sort of like, you know, after four years of civil war, the rebel flag never flew in the Capitol. And then on January 6th, it does. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's a historical, of course, cause like the rebel flag, they didn't, that wasn't a goal. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, they would have liked to do that, but it wasn't like the goal of the, of the, the Southern, uh, the Confederacy. Yeah, but, it was a, it was a I, fairly obscure think, symbol, even at the time. Yeah, right. I mean, most sure, Confederates yeah. had never seen the rebel flag. It, in, in right. It, and there, there are, um, there are scholars who've done done better work on that, and I won't get us into the weeds on on the how we got to that battle flag being the flag of mass resistance and of segregation. But something happened between you know the the nineteen sixties and two thousand something, and the rebel flag morphed. This rebel battle flag morphed from being you know purely a, a symbol of southern segregationists to also being a symbol of almost american rural life mm. and i say that from here in iowa where i'll see all if i get out of the out of the larger towns and or even in in ames where i am or in des moines you'll see these flags on cars with iowa license plates with people that i'm certain uh don't most of them don't have some family link to the south they haven't brought it with them uh there isn't hasn't been that that great a movement of Southern whites into Iowa in its history since then. And so it's, and, and I can also repeat from a, a colleague who teaches uh, a history of the South here that when he tried to talk to them about, you know, the differentiation between the North and the South and sort of culture and identity at the time, many of them had no trouble identifying with the Southern, uh, with the folks of the South, because it's sort of morphed in this sort of like rural notion, notwithstanding the fact that the South is now, very much as urbanized as the rest of the country, but this notion that identity is there. And so I think there's some of that, and that's that speaks to why you'll find some people don't quite get why that symbol is problematic to other folks in our country, right? Mm -hmm. That they don't get it because it doesn't have the same meaning to them. Uh, but in terms of the, 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 the gentleman who was in the it seems awfully generous to call him a gentleman, but the, the man who's in, <laughs> uh, in the Capitol, uh, what he's signaling there is certainly, uh, or is, is very likely to be uh, a symbol of white supremacist activities and movements, that there are people who, uh, who are, so, you know, you, you've, we've all heard of the Proud Boys who don't really use these images, right? They have their own uh, images and, and there's groups like the American Workers Party which has its own images but then you also have the southern nationalist movements and some of the white supremacist movements that are more explicitly so who continue to use uh, symbols of uh, the Confederacy or uh, what we could say kind of sort of modern symbols of the Confederacy you know symbols that aren't really connected to the Confederacy of the time but have come to symbolize that uh, and so I think there is some of that signaling going on and by using a symbol that has more than one meaning, like this meaning of, oh, this is just sort of rebellion, this is anti-government, this is rural America, this is the South, or what? Ha this is anything other than the coasts, right? Mm -hmm. That you are also doing a thing that these movements, uh, these organizations like the Proud Boys, like Identity Europa, uh, and other white nationalists and white supremacist groups want to do, which is to depict themselves as part of 
as close enough to the mainstream that it it's okay if you kind of like what they have to say and you want to join, right? And then you get radicalized or you get further radicalized. And so they do a lot of this sort of soft recruitment, which is the same reason why they talk about, oh, well, we're not about white supremacy. We're just about white pride. We're just about mm -hmm. white culture and heritage. We're not about uh, racism. We're just about, and they'll, they'll, we're just about being, you know, there gets to be black pride. Why can't there be white pride? This is just about your ethnic heritage. We're just about taking care of ourselves. And that is a way to uh, achieve multiple goals. One is to sort of, as a recruitment tool, as, you know, someone who, you know, a young man who's 19 who knows racism is bad, but doesn't really have an experience of what that means, uh, isn't going to be brought in by a group that says, you know, we're racialists, but might be brought in by a group that says, it's okay, you're uncomfortable with the fact that your whiteness seems to be problematized. Well, come talk to us. We'll teach you how to be proud about that. And then they can build you along. So that's one purpose. Another purpose is is smokescreen. And the, the move from uh, white supremacist to white nationalist to white identitarian as labels is an explicit move from labels that progressively got harder and harder to get away with using without people knowing exactly what you meant. Mm -hmm. Right. So white supremacist, well, that got figured out. So white nationalist, well, that's getting figured out. Identitarian, well, that's a word that doesn't really mean a lot to anybody. So you can sort of hide it. And then there is the part where that gives cover for building alliances with, with maybe uh, groups that are not as committed to the extremes of these ideologies, but are uh, willing to engage in that uncomfortable bedfellows type of behavior. Yeah, was that kind of signaling, say, in the, you know, in the early 20th century, you know, I, I think of, of, of Hitler in Vienna, right? You know, um, sort of listening to the street corner, you know, uh, populist types, you know, uh, preaching anti-Semitism or, or whatnot. I forget the name of the guy who supposedly was uh, the, the the influence on, on a young Hitler. It was before the war. Well, there's Luger. Luger. There's Luger. Yeah. Uh, I mean, were they as concerned with this kind of signaling, you know? I mean, the Nazis, the National Socialists are famous for their, you know, their, their iconography, but I mean... Was mm -hmm. there that kind of nascent, you know, signaling of, of you know, whether it be symbols or, or, or sure, I, yeah. you know, identities, names, uh, catchphrases? Uh, certainly there was uh, in the period before the First World War in, in Germany, which is relevant to, to the origin of Adolf Hitler and other important national socialists, but all, or origin of their ideas, but also these movements exist in other countries across Europe and in the United States. Uh, but there certainly was... In, in the German-speaking territories of Austria and in um, of the Austrian Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and in the German Empire, there was a sort of, you can think of it as a, as a sort of a melting pot of different uh, populist right-wing ideas that were inspired by racialized ideas that were hyper-nationalist, that were often linked to religious identities at times. Uh, one of the things the National Socialists do is they decouple their movement from any explicit uh, form of Christianity, they just sort of say we're, we're just Christians. And they're not unique in that, but that is an important part of their ideas, uh, even as they themselves were pretty hostile to organized Christianity at times. But the this period, you know, we could say roughly 1890 through World War I, uh, there are uh, various movements like the Pan-German League in, in Germany, there are Austrian-German uh, nationalist movements, uh, Christian socialists and things like that, that that are certainly moving this space and, and leaning on anti-Semitism and 
other forms of uh, rigid nationalism that are uh, creating this sort of uh, this stew or this this milieu of just ideas bouncing around that is not dissimilar to now, where there are, there are lots of different white nationalist mm-hmm. organizations, lots of different ideas being kicked around, but they have certain fundamental shared ideas, and they they fall into coalition fairly easily. And after World War One, you know, the German Workers' Party, which is the original name of the National Socialists, is just one of many small movements in various places that's espousing a, a hard right-wing nationalist, militaristic, uh, maybe fascist, but more likely we can just say sort of something that we can see how it, how the folks who might think that would move to a, a fascist ideology. Uh, and it's out of that space that the National Socialists ultimately uh, succeed in sort of co-opting some of these groups, attracting supporters, uh, pull, you know, it's one of those things where like the strongest one ends up being the one that collects everybody. And so they, they through the, the early part of the, sorry, the late part of the 1910s and into the right around 1921-22, they uh, start to show themselves as being maybe one of the more important ones in Germany. Uh, and then uh, through the 20s, they sort of pull in all these others. There are some rivals that are less extreme, like the German National People's Party, uh, which is a much more sort of still a, a terribly um, anti-Semitic party, but is uh, more conventional in its uh, attempts and its goals. Uh, yeah, cool. I think I've answered that mm. question, Chris. Yeah, yeah. no, appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, out of this sort of inchoate, it's an important perspective. It just occurred yeah. this sort of inchoate, you know, um, almost maelstrom of, of various movements, you know, because, you know, hindsight, we look back and say, oh, clearly National Socialism or we see fascism in Italy or something. But really there was a kind of, uh, you know, like I say, a kind of nebulous, almost hard to define quality to it, it seems. And they all had their own signaling and, you know, iconography mm-hmm. and all that. But uh Standing on the other side, you know, we see how it at some point it's going to kind of coalesce, as you say, in the more workable strategies or more successful strategies and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah. And, and one of the important things to know about the Nazis and, and other movements, but particularly I'm, I know the most about the Nazis, is they are this is a dynamic intellectual movement. And we usually use dynamic in a positive way, but just as descriptive. Right. There are lots of different ideas bouncing around. There are different uh, interpretations of what the policy should lead to. Uh, and, and Hitler and his close confidants are able to uh, sort of collect all those ideas and, and create a, a basic framework of where the state is going. And, and eventually, uh, Hitler and his, again, his close confidants, their interpretation of what uh, the movement should be doing and what it should be for uh, wins out, both through sort of prosaic political activity, but also through kind of winning the argument uh, and, and getting what they want to have happen. And that's pretty established by the mid-20s that, that Hitler is in, in pretty full control. I mean, there's you can talk about the Strasser brothers as, as possible rivals, but they're, um, they prove to be relatively marginalized uh, with some ease eventually. I want to go back quickly to something Chris said, which was about um, this idea that, you know, from the present, the past seems inevitable. Like, of course, the Nazis mm-hmm, were, gonna, mm-hmm. were going to emerge. And, and, and now, you know, as we transition to your book, you, you mentioned early on in the book this, this concept that's really prominent in, in the way people have thought about German history, and that's the concept of Sonderweg. Yep. 
I say that correctly? Yep. Uh, which which means something like special path. Is that mm-hmm. the translation? Mm-hmm. And, and the idea being that this was always destined to happen because of this path Germany had been on, I guess, from the 19th century to to the 1920s, 30s. Yep. Is that, that the, yep. That's the idea? It's And, and you, you mentioned pretty early on that you you don't buy into that concept of a special path. Can can you talk a little about about talk a little bit about the idea of Sunderweg sure. and why your your research I think particularly in this book suggests that it's not as easy as as suggesting there's just a path that was that Germans Germany was always going to be on that was going to lead to ultimately the Nazis and the Holocaust. Right. Like so the Sonderweg's sort of origins lie uh, at their strongest in the 1960s with sort of argument that at some point in Germany's history, it goes off the rails and deviates from the, the so-called norm of, of central or Western, mostly Western European social and political development, and mm-hmm. that, that Germany fails to have a successful uh, bourgeois revolution that fails to in, in, you know, put in place strong enough liberal uh, principles and guardrails of governance that would have prevented, in theory, this, this, this horrible deviation into Nazism and the Holocaust. And uh, the argument with that is, is uh, responded to in the 1980s with, with this revision by David Blackburn and Jeff Ely, who uh, point out that, you know, to assume that there's some norm of historical development is to preclude any other possibilities. Uh, and that, in fact, even, even to say that, we can also look at the premise that there was no successful um, establishment of liberal values in Germany as, as can be falsified, shown to be false in other ways. And this, this really enriched the, the literature, literature through the 80s and 90s. And, and you know, the, the Zonderweg has mostly been pushed aside, although there is this persistent, uh, you, at some point you do have to say that Germany deviated from the norm, if just in the fact that no other country has carried out the Holocaust. Right. Um, we have had genocides and uh, horrible ethnic cleansing activities in other places, uh, but understanding sort of German history, you have to sort of, as German historians say, well, where does that come from, right? Because we're all about causation in history, and where does that come mm-hmm. from? And when does it become, I guess you could say, the most likely outcome of German his- of, right. of sort of German historical events? And one of the things that's happened as uh, since the 1990s and through the 2000s and the 2010s, there's been a renewed interest in Germany's colonial history, partly driven by a renewed interest in globalization and a renewed interest in uh, the history of race and post-colonial studies and things like that. Uh, and, and I'm part of that new interest in that with this book was this uh, attempt, I would say, to resurrect the Zonderweg uh, by looking to the colonial history of Germany for the argument, and specifically looking to the uh, the genocide carried out by the German military and colonial government in what is now Namibia against the Herero and Namaqua peoples, and that this genocide uh, in just after the turn of the 20th century indicates something about German culture that predates the Nazis that that points the way towards towards the Holocaust and toward towards the Nazis and towards the Holocaust. And what, what my book says is that, okay, let, let's, let's consider this, but if we assume a continuity of racial violence and racial extreme violence from the colonial context, then we need to take the entirety of sort of German colonial culture in consideration. 
And there have been there have been scholars who produced pretty pretty clear work that demonstrates, yeah, there there's a colonial culture in Germany that did perpetrate and perpetuate uh, racist imagery and racist ideas amongst the German people. Uh, but what all those works did was uh, that none of them really operated in in these missionary movements and the and looked at what the missionaries were up to, except sometimes as a footnote or a paragraph here or there. And the that is problematic as I learn more about the German missionaries, when you start to talk about how many missionaries we're talking about, you start to talk about their presence in the German colonial empire, and, and then by extension, and, and one of my chapters in the book really examines this, their presence in German culture back in Germany. Because as Chris knows, and as I'm going to assume you know, Josh, as well, every missionary <laughs> in the field has dozens of people back home who are supporting them, who are interested in what they're doing, who are some of them functionally supporting it directly, right, by working at the Mission Society or by donation or simply by spiritual support, whether we mean through prayer, but that translates, of course, into other action, too. So if we, if we look at the German missionaries, we can fall into the trap of assuming that because missionaries played an important role in pioneering colonialism in, in all countries and all empires, then they must have been willing uh, collaborators in the German colonial project, and we must assume that the German colonial project was one that inherently in, was was sort of set up and predestined to engage in racial violence, uh, specifically genocidal racial violence. To that, I would say, and one of the things I point out, uh, there's sort of a two paths of critique that I think are important. One is that the Germans are not unique. If we look at yeah. the global history of colonialism before the First World War and after the First World War and into the 50s and 60s, you cannot identify a colonial government that does not engage in horrific violence against its colonized uh, subjects. And you can point to events that are historically uh, nearly simultaneous to the Hirao-Namako genocide that are occurring in other colonial empires that are killing similar numbers of people. And I don't bring this up in some sort of diminishing of the violence of the Germans. But to say, what we need to be aware of is that colonialism was inherently, had an inherent tendency toward genocidal right. violence. And yeah. we can, if as American historians, uh, if any of your listeners are, or I know Chris, you're an American historian, you just need to look at the, the conquest of the American continent by white people Certainly, over yeah. Native American peoples, right? Yeah. And yeah, so that's the first critique, which isn't a big... You know, it's not. It's 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 sort of one of those things that others have done in in pretty easy systematic systematic short articles. You can reveal this, um, but it's it's relevant to my work because the model for understanding missionaries is so often the British missionary model, mm -hmm. and yeah. sometimes the American. In the British missionary model, you have a much stronger movement to support the colonial state. You have yeah. a much stronger movement to uh, engage in. Um, cultural colonialism. All mm -hmm. that said, uh, the German missionaries, on the other hand, are different. They absolutely engage in cultural colonialism. They are telling people that their uh, belief systems are false and need to be replaced with this Western European or Central European version of a faith that's created in, uh, you know, in the Roman province of Palestine and across the Greek-speaking world, right? They, uh, they are <laughs> telling them that this is the right faith. And so that's colonialist. And they engage in all kinds of work that, like the Komarovs identify as colonization of the consciousness, right? The transformation of people's worldviews. But they don't want to create uh, cultures that are mimics 
of Germany. They don't want to transform mm -hmm. how people dress too much. They don't want to transform uh, the language people speak. They're not all that. They, in fact, uh, diminish the teaching of German that is not as important to them as teaching in uh, the indigenous languages that they identify and help create. Uh, so they are engaged in a whole other project that is that builds on an alternative understanding of what they're up to and that is very skeptical of the secular colonial project of economic exploitation and bureaucratized governance. They are mm. in opposition. So this Zonderweg as... So if they're not... If there's this big presence in the colonies of uh, white Germans who don't want to uh, engage in a sort of exploitative or the same kind of exploitative colonization as the German state and German economic interests, which can be argued as what led to the Hurao-Namakwa genocide and other violence in other colonies, then we have to question how strong this Zonderweg argument is again. Uh, because suddenly this continuity of colonial violence and racial violence breaks down. Yeah, I've been reading uh, Amy Cesare a lot. Just like mm -hmm. flip, flip open discourse on colonialism every once in a while. You know, his whole thing, he's obviously writing, I think it's 55 or so he's oh, writing so that. Right. And he, he he's pretty explicit in, in kind of talking about Germany and, and Hitler, not as part of some special path, but but... A can't, you know, uh, right along the path that Western civilization, you would say, had been going on for for decades, if not long. I mean, maybe he'd go back to the Spanish conquest mm -hmm. of centuries. Um, that there wasn't, no, there was absolutely nothing special about about Hitler, and he makes the case that a lot of kind of European humanism, in fact, uh, was leading to somebody like Hitler. Not German humanism, but just more broadly speaking, um, you know, humanistic liberal values. Sure. Um, to the extent they supported colonialism, to the extent they looked the other way when massacres happened in the colonies, they were smooth in the path for somebody like Hitler to emerge, whether it was in Germany or elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to. I don't want to surrender. You know, as a German historian, it would be a violation for me to surrender the unique importance of German history uh, to anyone. <laughs> yep. But it certainly is the case, and part of my argument is that uh, certainly through the First World War, if you are looking for the moment when Germany goes off the rails and you want to use the colonial yeah. narrative. Then you need to be careful because the the German missionary, and so you could argue, you know, racial ideas produced in the colonies come back to the metropole and are inscribed into culture, right? And then that mm -hmm. there's a, a scholar has argued that there's a taboo broken, right, about violence driven by race, extreme violence. Right. Well, you have to then prove that those ideas dominate and create a, a, mm -hmm. a strong cultural impact, and when I think you can safely argue that there are uh, high hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are following closely the activities of the German Protestant missionaries. German Protestant missionaries are coming back to Germany and saying, the people in the colonies in our mission stations are your religious brothers and sisters. Mm. And we are helping them discover Christian truth, and we are helping them join us in this global international that will transform the world. But they aren't saying that these heathens are so debased and backward that they must be uh, transformed whole cloth. Right? They are, right. they are, it, it can be very hard in the sources to figure out what someone said at a, pre, you know, when they went and preached at a church, which is what these missionaries would come back and do. But if you sort of, in the, in the book, I demonstrate that, that the missionary movement was pretty unified in its ideology, that, that they were, uh, racist and racial thinkers, but they were not uh, 
at the extreme that, that would be necessary to argue for the strong link to, to Nazi racism. And that mm. if that if you can prove that, and then you can say, well, look at how many people they were talking to and listening to. And you can't guarantee that the people who listened to them imbibed and completely accepted the missionary's version of the world. But you can say plenty of people probably did, right? These are experts coming back and describing the world to you. And right. they're at the very least going to keep you from going too far away from what they think you would hope. And so right. I think that's that. And you're, you bring up Amy Césaire. I mean, he's writing at the same time as Hannah Arendt's um, Origins of Totalitarianism comes out. And that's often mm -hmm. a book that's used to point to, because she does argue that there's a connection between colonialism and the Holocaust. Yeah. But she doesn't argue that it's a German. She's arguing about sort of global colonial culture, right? That there's this whole problem of the West. That's mm -hmm. my words, not hers. And that that to sort of suggest that she's saying, therefore, it was German colonialism that led to the Holocaust. What she's saying, I would argue, is that colonialism led to the Holocaust, which is a different argument than saying yes. German colonialism did. You know, I, I have to say, you know, in reading your book, Jeremy, I thought there was this sort of fundamental tension right at the heart of it, you know, and it's I think partly because of the way you, you chose to take it on, which was to try and make this case that these German missionaries, you know, mostly, you know, Protestant uh, Christian missionaries were not accepting the the sort of standard tropes at the time that was you know, they were being ginned up by you know, let's, let's call it secular imperialism, you know, about like mm -hmm. racial mm -hmm. scientific racism or something like that. You said they may have had a kind of cultural predisposition to see African people yeah. a certain way, but they were self-consciously not wanting to buy into that other. Uh, and something like language in the school, I thought was a great example, you know, where you have the missionaries arguing, say, in East Africa, right? And, and by the way, you mm -hmm. did such a nice job of, of evoking what is sometimes the forgotten colonial expanse of Germany, just because, as you point out, you know, some of the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the celebrity nations uh, of, of, of imperialism, like, you know, France and England <laughs> and such, or, or Britain, that, uh, that there's a sizable German, um, you know, colonial expanse by the, by the 20th century. And yeah. so in East Africa, you know, you have these missionaries doing their level best, you know, to, to bring Swahili you know, into these 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 missionary schools, you know, and as you say, not a complete yeah. overhaul of how people are dressing or imagine other things. But at the same time, you know, they are Germans, you know, and they are Westerners in that sense. Yeah. And so they are naturally, you know, on some of they're bringing a, a kind of ethnocentrically European curriculum, I think you said at one point, you know, in, into the content part of the mm -hmm. schools. Um, so I guess, you know, and, and so there's a real tension there, right, between not wanting to be of that same imperial project that the, the more secular or more racially driven, you know, um, imperialists are. And, and you see this in the United States, too, because the U.S. has its own missionary efforts to places like the Philippines, I think you mentioned. Uh, mm -hmm. But to, to what oh, yeah, I... to what extent then? Having made that distinction, I think it's a perfectly good, good distinction because it's just, you know, multiple forms of imperial design. You know, they don't all, all come necessarily uh, packaged exactly the same way. Uh, but, you know, to what extent do we look then, even in our current uh, contemporary context, at some of these more, well, I think of Mike Pence, right? You know, a kind of, you know, Christian, born-again uh, let's say uh, Dominion, mm -hmm. Christian Dominion, you know. Um, but but mm -hmm. but 
you know, they're coming for Pence at the Capitol, right? You know, they want to hang Mike Pence. And so right. I just wonder, you know, to what extent these, these missionaries found themselves suddenly in a bind because they're trying to make these distinctions, but they're part of a larger imperial project that ultimately does tend toward those kinds of extremes, you know, including violence, as you pointed out, in Southeast Africa, yeah. um, and maybe more racially driven programs, you know, did they feel that they were constantly trying to walk that line? That's where the tension for me is, is coming from. And in the end, yeah. do they give a certain cover? Not not because they wanted to, not by design, but because, you know, it all gets sort of enveloped in this imperial umbrella, you know. Do they end up feeling maybe they get co-opted a little bit? Oh, yeah. No, thanks, Chris. You give me a lot to chew on there. I think so uh, first I want to talk about, you, you're right to, and I'm, the, to point out that the German Empire is not this joke, right? And there's a couple of anecdotes that, or, or fact points that can be delivered, right? Like it lasts longer than the Third mm -hmm. Reich mm -hmm. in historical time, right? Mm -hmm. so, and we, we, so it deserves attention if we're measuring by how long something lasted, which of course is not the only reason to do it, right? And I remember an anecdote I gave to my advisor on the PhD early on, and I thought that I had a really, and he was sort of skeptical of maybe working on colonialism, uh, on Germany, and, and I thought maybe, you know, maybe this was a great argument, and I still think it is. I have no idea if it convinced him or not, right? I don't know what it was, but but that if you sort of did a poll around the world in 1913 about which empire was like the up-and-coming empire, a lot of people would have said Germany, right? A lot of people would have said that's an empire with a future, that country is on the rise, their empire is, there was this mythology that it was, you know, rationalized and scientifically managed, and and it was sort of part of this project, right? And, and that also, you, you raise this point that there are multiple colonialism. And what I've come, what I came to discover working on this project was that, you know, there is one big colonial project, right, that we talk about as colonialism with a capital C, right, this one big project. But within that, there are, you know, at the very least, dozens of, you know, there's a British colonialism, there's a German colonial project, there's a French one, there's a Spanish one, there's an American one, right? But then there's also like a missionary colonial project and a a sort of capitalistic, and you can keep, you can split it, and they all have different ideas because, in some ways, colonialism and empire building was the was the it was almost the grammar of statecraft and of economics at the time, and so and cultural power, right? And so everyone wanted to be it was was part of that conversation, had lots to say about that, and so. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, there are two things you're very much right about. The missionaries do find themselves in a bind, and they're very aware of this, right? They are constantly in this book defending themselves against pressure to be more nationalistic, mm -hmm. right? They are defending themselves against pressure to teach German in their schools on a regular, there's a drumbeat as the secular colonial movement. It says, you know, these are our colonies. We're not spreading German culture sufficiently. We are losing that cultural war with the British and French who are, and so we need to be insisting that our missionaries are teaching in German. The missionaries, because of their... Uh, theology and because of what works for them are resistant. Uh, you have regular pressure for them to engage in sort of capitalistic transformation of the labor force, right? That in their schools, what they should be teaching are the skills necessary for an African to go work on the railroad or to go work at a plantation or in mines. And they resist that as well because they have this idea that what they want to create is the autonomous, free-acting Protestant individual who is a small craftsman or a farmer. And this is, again, a bit of colonial imposition, right? Because they're saying this is the right way for you, mm -hmm. you Africans, to live. 
but they are mm -hmm. also at the very minimum resistant to a, a particular form of colonial exploitation. And I, I think it's, so they do, they're in this bind of like trying to walk the line and you see them slip. Uh, and, and in one of my chapters, uh, I talk about something called the Benedictiner Strike, which is this conflict between uh, the Berlin Mission Society, which is a Protestant mission society, it's one of the largest ones in Germany, and the, the Benedictines of Sankt Attilian, which is a Catholic mission order, uh, active, they're based out of Bavaria, and they're active in uh, German East Africa, and there is a territorial conflict between these two uh, religions, and, and what's embedded in that is sort of 400 years of religious animosity in Germany, and you know, 50 years of regular um, dispute with Catholic religious orders in Germany. But also what's there, and what happens is that the Protestant missionaries forget themselves and they use nationalistic, nationalistic arguments. They claim that the, the, that the Catholics are not truly serving Germany and that they are violating this and that they, they engage in dishonest anti-German activity and they do that by appealing to sort of the, a classic uh, liberal German and Protestant German accusation against Catholics of being loyal to Rome and not to the country, of being mm. irrational and feminine, and all these kinds of um, labels. And so there they, they, they can't help themselves. Uh, and they can't help but be German in that moment. And they, they, what I argue is in that moment they discover, oh, there's maybe this other bit of ammunition that we could have been using to get what we want, which is access to territory and the people who live in that territory in order to evangelize them. Um, but the, the other thing is that nevertheless, their sort of internationalist, their belief in a global alliance of Protestants that will transform the world and make everyone a Protestant of some kind, and they're, they're pretty broad about what that can be. Uh, that is a that's very strong all the way up until World War One, and then there's this like sense that they may have hoodwinked themselves, mm -hmm. that they may have deceived themselves, and that's not a functional way as the sort of nationalist and colonial rivals of World War One just crack that open, and the mission movement just is destroyed by the war. They mm -hmm. their missionaries are put into internment camps, the finances collapse, the contact with the missions is lost when the when the colonies are split up as um, as League of Nations mandates, the mandatory powers are given the right to decide whether or not the Germans can come back, and they don't for a long time let them back to the fields. And this is this is what's going on. And, and to some extent, Gustav Warneck, who's in the book pretty frequently, is a very important mission theorist. He himself is never missionary. He had a, a chronic, some sort of chronic chest disease that just made it so going to tropical climes would have been too dangerous. Uh, he he writes around 1900 when you sort of see a new phase of colonialism break out with the uh, the Boxer Rebellion in China and the American victories in the um, Spanish-American War and the, the Japanese victory over Russia and previous to that over China. You see this new phase and he talks about how um, the missionaries need to adapt somewhat because as this new rivalry picks up, they run the risk of getting caught up in it. And he reminds them, you know, and he has this, this line where he says, you know, we are not, uh, we are not looking to make, missionaries are not looking to make uh, people into Englishmen, Frenchmen, Spaniards, etc. 
they're looking to make them into Christians. And we need to remember that. Mm -hmm. And so there, there's certainly that going on. I like that line. I had that line written down. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, one of the things that, that you just talked about these missionaries, one of the things that kind of drew me into them is that I'm, I'm really interested in, in people, you know, basically in this era, uh, you know, later 19th century into the 20th century, who are kind of confronting this emergent modern capitalist world yep. and trying to envision trying to, to envision a, a I don't want to that path is not the right word. We've already, we've already problematized path too much, but, um, <laughs> but trying to envision, trying to come up with a new vision of yeah. what that world can be. And, and, you know, they've got all these things they need to reconcile to make it happen. And the thing that st stood out to me is, is a lot of things that the, these, the missionaries were saying, Varnick, as one of them, is, is not that different than what you can find like uh, Islamic intellectuals in India or Persia or uh, the Ottoman Empire saying at the same time, uh, you know, again, similar things about trying to reconcile faith and modernity and capitalism and kind of you know, the essence of who we are and, and, you know, all these, these kind of identity and ideological and intellectual things going on, even as they try to resist, uh, you know, many of the forces of, of, of that modern world. So, you know, we tend to think of the, the kind of the West versus arrest thing as the way yeah. things are often set up, but it's, it's interesting to see people going through some of the same, um, you know, intellectual, uh, I don't know, gymnastics, I guess we can say, to try to, to yeah. carve out a, a way of thinking that can, serve their interest in, in, a, in a particular way and, and allow them to pursue the path that they want to pursue within a world that's increasingly limiting what those paths can be, I would say. Yeah, Josh, that's that's a really great insight and one that uh, makes total sense as you said it. I hadn't really thought too much about it, but yeah, absolutely. You have these these movements in, in what at the time would have been the colonized world or, or certainly not what uh, the missionaries would have thought as the center of the world. Where, uh, where there's this sort of how do we, how do we exist as modern people uh, in a world and still hold to our identity. And what's, mm -hmm. what's interesting to me, one of the things that really fascinated about the missionaries to me was that, and this goes back to something you, uh, or Chris said earlier that they couldn't help but be German. And so their, their mm -hmm. German context comes through in important ways. And in fact, by the, the nature of them being German empowers them to stand against German nationalism in this really interesting way, because the missionary movement has its origins in the pietistic movements of Germany, and these pietistic movements experience a, a, a sort of a period of expansion around the Romantic era, and they in, in between these two movements of this Romantic sort of skepticism of, of rationality and skepticism of the organized church and skepticism of the state is paired with a pietistic sort of idea about personal experience of faith and the, the building of small church communities and, and standing outside of the organized, rationalized church. So when you put those things together, it made the missionary movement in Germany uh, particularly skeptical of the colonial state and skeptical of capitalism. And when you, when you add on to that, their sort of fear that the, and, and in my book, I, I particularly focus on Germany, East Africa, their fear that uh, excessive colonial expansion and exploitation will proletarianize the African subject peoples, uh, people, then they will, that they want to stand against that because they, their sense is that proletarianization drives people away from, from the faith as it had in Germany, at least mm -hmm. in their interpretation yeah. through socialistic movements. And so this, this trying to hold on to a, a faith that is uh, grounded in what was perceived by them to be an older tradition, uh, while simultaneously 
living in a world that made their work possible. Right? Another important missionary, Carl Oxenfeld, describes how, you know, the Protestantism is going to spread around the world thanks to the fact that a locomotive blasted a hole in the the Great Wall of China, right? Like this metaphor of like <laughs> technology smashing down the isolation and making it possible and, and colonialism empowered and made this golden age of missionary work possible. But they don't really want to, so they, they, they need it and they need the protection of the state a lot of the time. And they need, sometimes they need subsidies from the state to pay for their schools. Uh, and so they, they, they're, and this is back to, to you, John, to Chris, I'm sorry. It's back to your point about they are caught in between all the time. And there's this tension of, of being true to these, these things, but being very modern. I mean, Varneck in, you know, initiates the formalization of mission studies, Missionswissenschaft in Germany, with a, a declaration that they're going to take the best of all the sciences and apply it to mission work. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to be they, he, he, we're going to bring in the best of agronomy so that we can do this the best possible way. We're going to bring in the best of uh, ethnology, which at the time was uh, basically what he would have known, what we now sort of have differentiated into ethnogra- ethnography and archaeology, anthropology, mm-hmm. and so forth. But these ideas are very much like we are modern, uh, but we are modern for some other thing. And then I would also argue that to imagine that you can make a global anything is a very late 19th century thing, right? right. I and mean, it's very much of that moment. You don't really have people, uh, there's some work in sort of at different moments where people can sort of imagine a global world, but I don't think when they imagine it, they, they think it actually could happen in their lifetime. And missionaries, many of them, I think, thought that, you know, if they lived a full life, by the time they died, the world would be, you know, measurably closer to achieving, you know, the return of Jesus, right? By being all Christian, right? right? So through their efforts, yeah, exactly. And through the efforts of this global alliance of, of British and American and French and Dutch and Swiss and et cetera. Yeah. And eventually Chinese well, and have, African missionaries yeah. too. Yeah. You, you have a quote by, by Vernick that, that kind of, I think gets across that, that, that ambiguity. He says, and I, I think I'm paraphrasing here. Where he says civilization brings many useful things, yep but it does not bring Christian faith. Exactly. Uh, so you talked about railroads and lights and all that kind of stuff. That's all great, but but ultimately the goal is not to bring those things. The, the goal is to, to bring that the, yeah. the, the faith itself. Which And maybe those uh, things bring with them too much, right? Maybe. Right. And they're, they're always trying to, I think, one of the things that's really coming forward and in, in talking to you guys, they're always trying to control how much modernity they have and they get and they give, right? And they're always trying yeah. to be in control, which is sort of like, a classically, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm always trying to have a lot more control in my life than is probably possible, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's just yeah. a it's a classic sort of uh, modern experience. I probably probably Absolutely. pre-modern too, but I'm not a pre-modernist, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> so we'll just assume it's modern. <laughs> just assume it's all different then. <laughs> Well, Jeremy, this has been fantastic. It's yeah. been a blast talking to you about your book. And once again, it's Heavenly Fatherland, German Missionary Culture and Globalization in the Age of Empire. And thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, oh, this was great. I really appreciate it. Can't wait. Yeah, but maybe we can have you on again. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, as you move on to your next project. Yeah, I'll have to write the Certainly. book faster. <laughs> and then I, can come on. I know. Yeah, you, you, have, you have one year. I don't know how long we can keep doing this. All right. Well, you may, been, you may have been preaching to the choir, you know, as a, as a guy who, who shared a certain amount of time in the... Uh, you know, in the garden, as it were, of doing religious history. But I thought it was a great read, Jeremy. I thought you had a, you know, a really sort of, it's a kind of edgy 
thesis going there um, that, that wound its way through this experience of modernity. So I really appreciated that. And, and yeah, I echo Josh. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. You, you guys have a great podcast, and I really uh, look forward to hearing my voice through the airwaves. It'll yeah. Take care. When you realize at last you can return the phantoms of the past, that's what spring is to begin. I love the ruins of Berlin. Well, I really enjoyed that, uh, Josh. You know, this is a book, by the way, truly, uh, you know, hot off the press. It has a 2021 publishing date, uh, a remarkable uh, cover illustration by the way we'll put that on the episode uh web page but uh, i had really been looking forward to talking to to jeremy because of what i see as a kind of you know historical overlap you said earlier it doesn't it doesn't repeat but it rhymes mm-hmm. a kind of historical rhyme maybe uh, a shout out to pernilla Wu, our our previous test a kind of polyrhythmic yeah uh, movement here to some of what we're seeing in our country right now you know with various strata of what we would call right or right-wing um, movements and ideologies, you know, that we've seen in the, in the Republican Party uh, in the age of Trump, how your old guard sort of buttoned down Wall Street capitalists, you know, I think of somebody like a, a Mitt, Mitt Romney, right, you know, uh, having, you know, no truck with the sort of forces unleashed since the Charlottesville um, episode in, in 2017, you know, where you had the more hard right paramilitary, what we would have called before fringe, even uh, fringe social media, white supremacist uh, types who have now been kind of drawn uh, by the gravity of, of Trump's success into something like a kind of mainstream where you have QAnon people being elected to Congress, you know, the woman from Colorado and the woman from Georgia. And I, I have not committed their names to memory yet. Uh, Marjorie, somebody. I think Marjorie is Green, yeah. The- yeah. Um, that I wonder if a guy like, you know, Pence, who before represented that kind of almost missionary zeal for an evangelical project, while governor of Indiana and even as as vice president and, and uh, you know with the you know the sort of Betsy DeVos types you know who have a, they have a, a religious project you know and it sort of works through a kind of mainstream channel but compared to the forces they've unleashed <laughs> you know with the, some of the folks we saw you know coming to bubbling to the surface you might say right from the nether regions of of the American fringe. You know, and, and finding themselves in the suddenly in the Capitol insurrection, you know, in, in uh, uh, on J- January 6th, that I wonder if, you know, they ever questioned they being the more semi mainstream types, Republican types. I know I know the folks like Mitt Romney do. Right. But I mean, I'm talking about even the, 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 the you know, the sort of the anti-abortionists and family values folks that were you know, brought into the fold of the Republican Party back in the 80s with Reagan, the moral majority types, you know, if even those folks now are wondering what they've unleashed <laughs> uh, in the, uh, you know, the form of, of Charlottesville in January 6th. I don't know. What do you what do you think? Well, that would that would assume that people like Mike Pence have like, you know, a conscious conscience and <laughs> are self-reflective and uh, all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the, one of the things that that's, you know, as you were making that, that comparison, you were talking earlier about the tension that exists within those missionary communities. 
And the tension is really between, you know, their desire to create this 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 Christian mission basically in, in Africa versus that secular colonial uh, project that was going on alongside of it and, and you know, how they were going to take part in that. But you think about, you know, even kind of the more mainstream and, and calling Pence mainstream even suggests how far right we've gone, mm-hmm. right? But, um, mm-hmm. you know, their whole project is, they don't really seem to care about mission missionization or anything like that anymore. In many ways, their project is to unite the secular and the, and the religious, to make the secular religious, in fact, right? That, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the tension that existed in those German colonies um, doesn't exist at all anymore because the goal is to put people in place like, um, oh my God, now I forgot our new Supreme Court justice. Uh, Amy Cody Barrett. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to put basically the people who maybe would have been the missionaries in the in the late 19th century, to put them in into secular power and then to expand that, that particular worldview into the secular realm, um, mm-hmm. which does not seem to have been part of the project of uh, of those German missionaries. And then, and then kind of the capitalist right. aspect of it as well, where, you know, modern conservative Christianity is largely, you know, based on that prosperity gospel, um, the, the, the linking of capitalism with Christianity, whereas there was a real, t- you know, part of that tension that, that you talked about with, with the missionaries and Jeremy talked about was that in, in some ways they were, they were very suspicious of capitalism or they were worried about the influence of capitalism. Uh, Jeremy talked about the proletarianization or the potential for that happening and that might get people away from religion. Um, so it just seems like fundamentally different projects in many ways, uh, even though you know both have a very religious worldview, uh, their goals and their aims are very different and their, and their relationship with that secular state in particular strikes me as, as fundamentally, uh, fundamentally different. Yeah, and it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle, you know. I mean, however well-intentioned some of the German missionaries were in, in mm-hmm. you know, promoting what they saw as, you know, a sort of pure, you know, um, kind of uh, uplift, project of uplift, you know, along the lines of their, their religious faith. You know, you're, you're in, some, in some, some pretty deep waters there, you know, when you start talking about the military, you know, components of colonialism and the, and the secular capitalistic components, not to mention these more sort of loose cannon, you know, kind of, uh, you know, paramilitary, uh, you know, groups. And I, I guess, you know, like a guy like Warnock, right, who was the, mm. the German missionary leader, I don't know if he lived long enough to see the rise of the Nazis, but, you know, I, I can only imagine he must have been thinking, that's not what we meant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not what we meant. And so I wonder if, if we'll see that, uh, you know, in the post-Trump presidency as these various factions unleashed by this um, kind of uh, – you know, open a vow of religiosity on the Supreme Court and in the Department of Education, you know, in the recent DeVos uh, Department of Education and some of these other areas, you know, whether they'll they'll uh, find their coalescence, you know, as they did in, in post-war Germany and Italy and elsewhere, you know, mm-hmm. in, in these more rabid, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, expressions of something that in in the beginning seemed, you know, maybe somewhat more milder, you know, by comparison. Yeah. Well, I mean, and what that you just made me think of is the, this thing we've been talking about a lot, or have talked about a lot, which is just the the idea that the modern world is the the product of some kind of rational process of construction, as opposed to this kind of hodgepodge of different ideas and unintended consequences and all this kind of stuff. That whatever vision the missionaries had 
you know, um, and whether you uh, support that vision or, or not. Um, the idea that the vision they had was going to match up exactly with the practice that missionization actually looked like, or that the relationship between what they were doing and what the state was doing was always going to remain, you know, separate and, and in the, their own uh, their own lanes, you know, was unlikely to happen. And uh, and 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 the end result is probably something very different than they they were intending. And and it's just a reminder that. I mean, that's almost all of history, right? That that ideas don't mm-hmm. just exist as mm-hmm. these pure things which then go out in the world and continue in their purity, that they're always going to come into contact with, with other things. And through that contact, they're going to fundamentally become something else. That once we mm-hmm. put those things out in the world, we no longer have control over what they become in many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've seen it again and again. You know, we've talked a lot on this show about, you know, the, 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 the fault lines of nationalism. You know, and, and we called today's episode Father Lands because we're trying to point out that, you know, you do have these different lanes occupied by different political players and, and even, you know, non-political players that all s- presume to speak in one way or another in the frame of, of patriotism in the name of something that loosely translates like, you know, fathers, founding fathers, mm-hmm. fatherland. I guess only the Russians kind of bucked the trend by saying Mother Russia. You know, that, that was kind of pre-national romantic notions of identity. But, yeah, in the age of the nation state, at least, you know, uh, I really liked uh, the point you made about uh, Amy Cesare and, and Jer- Jeremy followed up with a Hannah Arendt point, is that these forces are latent in the very construct of the nation state because mm-hmm. the nation state seeks to you know, its, its promoters seek to create a sense of identity built around an artifice known as the nation, the, the patria, the, you know, the, the father, etc. And so these things are ultimately, you know, not easy to control. I mean, it, they're, they can be kind of Promethean, you know, energies, really. And, and I think we saw that on, on, as I say, rabid display on January 6th. Because virtually all of those characters, you know, from their many different uh, symbols and patches and flags, all of them had some sense that they were taking back their nation, mm-hmm. you know, their fatherland in some uh, specific sense, I think. And within that rubric, you know, there's a whole telephone directory of different, um, you know, group names, identities, patches, symbols, uh but but there there is a kind of rabid quality to it, and and like Hannah Arendt and, and like Amy Cesare, I'd say, you know, we have no one to blame but ourselves in that sense. The, that is, those who have undertaken this project, including the religious missionaries, undertaking this project uh, that we call nationalism. This has been History Against the Grain, episode thirty-six, and we will talk to you again next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play.